before we go any further, I actually do have sermon notes here. Um, they were they were left. Uh, a couple guys want to pass them out. Sorry. Turn it off. Okay, am I? Now. All right. Very good. So, now we have a little of those uh, uh, details taken care of. Why don't we have our, our young people can uh, be dismissed into their Sunday school class. Okay. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Terry asked me to to uh, uh, preach for him because you know, they, like I said, they, they uh, for the past, well, I guess the end of last year, they are they had their grandchildren with them and so many surgeries and and things like that. There was a lot of stress on, uh, particularly Faith. He was was uh, quite uh, worn out, so um, they went on a, a week's vacation, and, and uh, so continue to pray for them, and uh, they'll be able to recover strength. Turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And let's pray. Our gracious Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we again come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus to praise your name and give you the honor and glory for your, your master work, your, your great work that you have worked this entire world, this entire universe, this every... Uh, Everything that occurs, all redound to your honor and glory. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to what you're doing, particularly in our lives, but in the, also in the lives of others. And help us to, uh, again, be ready always to speak for you, to give an answer to the, to the hope that lies within us, to be able to share your word with others that we meet, and uh, to be able to serve you in every capacity that we can possibly serve. But help us to do it pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as some of you know, um, just last week, the church purchased some new Sunday school material. And then, well, gee, that's, that's earth-shattering, isn't it? And normally it would not uh, deserve much notice, particularly not a sermon, but uh, this particular material marks a specific purpose and a direction that we intend to go. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to... Uh, Introduce it a little bit. Two weeks ago, John mentioned that I had distributed a book to our Sunday school teachers, and this is the book. 
It's called Already Gone. Um, and uh, this book, and particularly the research behind this book, um, was what was the catalyst behind the development of the Sunday School material and it also was a major motivating factor in, that led us to purchase this particular material. And like I say, I want to use this research guide as a, as a guide to, uh, to this message anyway. In Deuteronomy, if you remember the circumstance and situation, the Lord had been leading the children of Israel um, through the wilderness almost now for 40 years. And a whole new generation had come on the scene. The, it was, in reality, one of the longest funeral processions ever, ever to happen because there were close to two million people who came out of Egypt. And with very few exceptions, they all died during this march. And... The Lord knows something in the Lord's design of this universe and, and this world. His message to His people is always one generation away from failure. If we do not or are not faithful in the proclamation of the word of, of God to our, the next generation, who's going to carry it? And that was the situation in Israel. So that's why Deuteronomy, literally the second law, was written. Because Moses took the law that the Lord had... Let's look at verse 1 here. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that, was, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your sons and your sons' sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Here's the, what, the message that I want you guys to have so you can give to your children and your children's children and all the way down the line so that you can fear the Lord. You can be aware of, of the Lord. You can worship Him. You can have a proper relationship with Him. And skip down to verse 4. This is where, where we really want to start. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This passage is referred to as the great Shema. From the very first word, hear, O Israel, that's the Hebrew word, Shema. Hear, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Listen to this. And the great 
profession of faith, particularly in the, the context where they were with, with all the different gods and goddesses that were, were believed on, God is one. There is but one God. That was their great profession of faith. And what, was their, what, was their, what were they required to do? This is, by the way, also the passage that the Lord Jesus was referring to when the Pharisee came up to him and says, Lord, what is the great commandment? And the Lord Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all, all thy mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On all these hang all the law and the prophets. This is the passage that the Lord Jesus was referring to. This is the single most important thing that the Lord wants of us to love him with all our heart with all our strength with all our might by the way just a thought to consider if this is the greatest commandment then is not the failure to do this the greatest sin if we fail to do the most important thing that God tells us to do, is that not the greatest sin that we can commit? Which is why we can't go through one day without sinning. Because there are how many times during the day we're so involved in our day-in and day-out activities, we, our mind is just far from the Lord. And then we have to keep coming back. Lord, I've been living as if you didn't exist. But at any rate, that leads us really away from the message. In reality, this has to be the great focus of our, of our life, of our heart and our life. The greatest single motivation behind all that we do the all-encompassing focus of our entire being to love the Lord. Without love for the Lord, all our obedience to His commands degenerate into legalism. I mean, we can make all sorts of laws, all sorts of rules, on this is what you have to do, and we can keep them just like the Pharisees did. But what does that do? Without love for the Lord God, the disciplines of the Christian life soon become lifeless rote habits. I mean, reading your Bible is a good thing, right? Praying daily is a good thing. Coming to church, giving an offering, all good things, right? Without love for the Lord, it's just habits. We could just develop different habits. Without love for the Lord God, all the Christian service we might render or prayers we might make or devotions we might keep 
will very soon break down to dry, dusty, dull drudgery. Okay, it's time to crack open my, book, my Bible. I'll read this for 45 minutes. Oh, is it time yet? Can I finish? I have 45 other things on my mind that I want to do. And I have to, but I have to read my Bible. Is that really loving the Lord? Of course not. Not only that, do you think that, this, did that, please, that sort of activity pleases the Lord? Well, I said my prayer. I got down everything on my prayer list. I said a prayer for everybody. <coughs> a good thing, right? What the, you remember what the Lord Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4? After commending them for their good works, he says, but I have somewhat against thee. And what was the thing that he had against them? They left their first love. They're doing all this good stuff, commendable stuff, but without a love for the Lord. <coughs> so let me ask you, how do we go about learning the love of the Lord? How do we day in and day out in a very practical way love the Lord in our lives? Well, let me suggest to you the first steps are in the next few verses. Normally, as you read through Scripture, when the Lord tells you to do something, He'll normally tell you a method which to accomplish His, his Word. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Step number one. The Word of God in, brought into your heart and life. Meditation, memorization, reading. The very first and primary step in the process of developing a love for the Lord is to study, to memorize, and to meditate on the Word of God. And not just the law of Moses, although that's important. That's the foundation. But the other 61 books of the Bible, too. It is a lifelong process. And we're all at various points along the path. Some of us got a head start on others, but nevertheless, we're all on that same path, hopefully. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Another very important aspect to this. Remember, like I said, the Word of God is always one generation away from failure, from extinction. 
at least in the common thoughts of people. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk in, by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, think about those activities. What are they? You sit down, you stand up, when you walk around. Are they special times during the day? Well, you might say, yeah, when you rise up out of your bed, that's... Well, what's so, what's so special about that? What is he getting at here? In every minute detail of your life, in the, from, the, from the most minuscule activities in your day-in and day-out life, take every opportunity to communicate the Word of God to your children. Every aspect of our life, we are to both model and teach the Word of God to our young people. Again, every minute detail of each day, using every opportunity and circumstance to communicate not only the precepts of the Word, but something I think is even more important our attitudes and our, our the value that we hold, the esteem that we hold the Word of God in. Our desire to know the Word. And all this is the purpose, really, behind this Sunday School material. Now, for those who've served the Lord for any length of time, that's this, and probably have heard this sermon before. <coughs> Excuse me. This is no surprise. There's, I'm not teaching anything new here. This is one of the central passages in the entire Bible for that teach us how to, to teach our children. There's nothing new here, but what might come as a surprise and what might, and it actually should shock us, was the research that I mentioned previously. That research strongly indicates, the research that went, is behind this book. It shows us that we're failing when it comes to communicating the Word of God to our children. Not merely fa failing to communicate the content of Scripture, but what may be more important failing to communicate the value of the Word of God to, the, to our young people. And when we fail to do that, when we fail to communicate to them the love that we have for the Word, the desire, the, the importance of the Word of God, 
what fills up there, the void that that creates fills, gets filled up quickly with other thoughts, ideas, philosophies. And these alternate ideas divert their minds from the love of God, from following after Him. Now, it's been noted by several research groups like Barna and, and things like that, that a large percentage, nearly two-thirds of young people who grow up, particularly in the church, two-thirds of young people leave the church and never return. They never come back. And these aren't results taken from dead, lifeless, liberal churches that have long ago ceased preaching the gospel. These are from evangelical, these results are from evangelical churches, both denominational and independent churches, where the gospel is believed and preached regularly. The ministries, Answers in Genesis, and, and America's research group wanted to get down to the root, the root cause of this issue. Why are so, such a huge percentage of young people, from a human perspective, why are they leaving the church? So they did a... a they conducted a nationwide statistically verifiable survey of young adults in their 20s and 30s who grew up in Bible preaching churches but no longer attend church. They wanted to, they wanted to like I said, they didn't want just the, well, I'm so busy, I don't have time to go to church. That's not a good enough reason. Because everybody, and this is a, maybe this is a pet peeve of mine, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. To say that somebody is too busy, they don't have time to do something, is a false idea. Because everybody has the same amount of time Every day. Everybody has 24 hours a day. And you have to sleep around eight of them. It's not whether you have enough time. It is what are your priorities. What do you consider important? What you consider important, you will always find time to do. And what you don't find important, that's what you don't have time for. So to say, for, for a person to say, oh, I don't have time to go to church, means it's not that high a priority in my life. So the question is, why? Why is it not a priority? Now, I'm, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here because we're all here in church. 
We all, everybody here obviously thinks it's a high enough priority to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and to come to church. But when it all boils down, the central theme that ran through all the responses that they, that they sent out, all the responses that they got back, the central theme was that the individuals who, like I said, grew up in church but no longer attend, the central theme was they had no confidence that the Bible was true, and in fact, they felt that it was irrelevant to their life. Now, when you, when you get into the, the church growth seminars and things like that, and, and you read the books, some of the things that they emphasize the most are a pastor who is outgoing and friendly and personable, and... People feel comfortable around them, and, and you, know, you ne never want to minimize that, or that the, the uh, music ministry is, is culturally relevant to the, to the group of people that are attending, and you always want that. That's, but those things are secondary. We're all secondary to this theme that there was no confidence that the Word of God was true. The research also continued. And they indicated there were two general areas that have brought about this situation. The first one was a failure in the Sunday school material itself. Now, Sunday school, does anybody, has anybody ever read in the, in the scripture where Sunday school was required by... No, the, the Sunday school was an invention of the English in, in the, uh, the 1600s. So, Sunday school is an addition. There's, nothing, there's no biblical commandment that says, Thou shalt have a Sunday school hour for your children in, in church. No, nothing like that. But would anybody question the importance of teaching your children? Well, of course not. And the Sunday school is a good method for doing that. But what are we teaching them? The failure of the Sunday school material was the first issue that was taken up. Now, generally speaking, the, all the Sunday school materials, when you look at them, are generally well-written. They're accurate. I mean, they, they produce good uh, Sunday school material. But the problem is they, the material presents the Bible as Bible stories. I mean, how many of us grew up learning Bible stories? And their focus on the moral content of those 
of the characters and of the events and the stories. And again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But at the same time, and here's, here's the rub, at the same time, the, the young people who are going through Sunday school learning these moral, good moral truths are also going through an through a educational system where they learn scientific subjects like biology, astronomy, archaeology, physics, chemistry, things like that, hard sciences. <coughs> Again, excuse me. And you get a little bit of a dichotomy because here are these... These young people are, are listening to their teachers and seeing these scientists and, and they see the advancement that modern science has, has made. I mean, we've... Does, any, does anybody remember when computers were the size of battleships on your desk? <laughs> and... I, I, I still remember the first computer that I had. It was, it was an IBM compatible, and it was 6, you know, 640K in, in RAM, in memory. You know, this thing has, uh, uh, this has 32 gigabytes of memory in it. And those of you who are not real computer literate might say, well, what in the world is that? Anyway, there's a whole lot more of that memory in there than in my original. And it had a 30 megabyte hard drive. One of the more infamous uh, statements by uh, Bill Gates was he never anticipates any time when any personal computer will need more than 640K of, of memory. Well, he's, he's learned to uh, uh, be ashamed of that statement. But at any rate, what, what brought about the amazing reduction in size in computers? Science, right? It's observing in the present how things work and then making it work in, in, real, in real time. That's what science does, and that's what's exciting about science. Because you can look at things, you can look them under the microscope, you can look them in the telescope, you can, you can have all these tools for, that modern science uses. But you know what? What can modern science, what can observing something under the microscope or in a telescope, what can that tell you about the origin of anything? Not a thing. And the, but the problem is the same scientists that produce such wonderful things are also saying that the earth is 14 or the universe is 14.7 billion years old. That the earth came about 6.5 billion years ago. Yeah, well, did you observe that? 
Were you there when it happened? Any, and I'll, I'll say this, any belief about how, about the origin of the universe or the earth or anything like that is a religiously held belief, whether it's evolution or creation. Because it's not science. You weren't there to observe it. You cannot reproduce in the laboratory an historical event. It can't be done. So modern science cannot directly tell you how things originated. They can tell you how they work right now, and it does wonderful. And it, they do wonderful. And there's not a responsible creationist scientist who would disagree with anything that they can observe under a microscope or in a telescope or with any other scientific uh, piece of equipment. But when it comes to history, what you're stuck with is what do you believe, what you can see. Here's an example. You, you drive along the turnpike and you go through the, the uh, road cuts and you see rock layers and there's a bunch of layers of rock layers. Or like you go out to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been out to the Grand Canyon? I wish I was... I'd like to go there. And, but at any rate, how many different rock layers do you see in the Grand Canyon? whole bunch. And they're very, very thick. How did those rock layers get there? If you believe in evolution, one layer at a time, slowly developed over millions of years, and then another layer, and then another layer, and then another layer. If you're a creationist, you say, no, those layers were laid down by the flood. And the, and the result is because you believe a different history, you have a different interpretation of what you can observe. It's the power of a presupposition. But that difference between historic, what you can call historical science and observational science, that difference is never talked about. So, so many people, and you'll, you'll see this repeated over and over and over again in all the blogs and all the, all the, the other the, the books that are written, that how can... You, Science has done such a great thing. How can you reject science? We don't. Re creationist doesn't reject science. It just rejects that false history. But because of all the wonderful things that observational science does, we're supposed to accept their version of history? I don't think so. So, but the problem is, as those young people go through the Sunday school class 
and hear the, the stories, and then they also see in school the hard sciences, the doubts begin to start. Is the Bible real? Can I trust that King David really slung a stone and whacked a guy in the forehead and killed him? Did David really exist? Do you really believe that Noah built a huge ship? Is that a real story? That doubt begins to develop. And again, as a result, that division develops where students equate school with science that is true and verifiable, but Sunday school is stories that may or may not be true. And besides, they happened a long time ago, and so that's irrelevant to my life. And that doubt, again, according to the research, begins in middle school. And so by the time they're teenagers, they're already gone, hence the name of the book. In their mind, in these young people's minds, that's all irrelevant stuff. And if I doubt the history, I have no reason to believe the morality. One of the more shocking things that they found out in this research is that the kids who, who said that they were there every single Sunday, they were in Sunday school every single Sunday. Part of this research was a, a, a section of moral beliefs, what they believe about abortion, what they believe about uh, sex before marriage or extramarital sex or, or all the hot-button issues of the day. What do they believe that? And the kids that characterized their Sunday school attendance as every Sunday had overall worse answers than the kids who occasionally went to Sunday school. That was one of the more shocking things that they found out in this survey. Whether it's just by you know, just rejection or, or rebellion, but whatever. When they rejected the Word of God, they also rejected the, the, the morality. <laughs> On top of that, both from their school teachers and from the world around them, young people hear questions that, that add to the doubts in their mind. Well, where did Cain get his wife? And that's a big one. Where did he get his wife? Well, how about, uh, do you really believe that a snake talked to Eve? Do you, how can light from stars that are billions of light years away be seen from the earth if the world is only 6,000 years old? That's another question. 
Few Sunday school materials even address such things. Um, is there a... Okay. From a point, from the point a, be, a person begins to doubt the word, it's no long, it's not a long stretch before they doubt the morality of the word. And that's where this division comes in. That's where the failure comes in. We failed to address the skeptical questions of the age. We failed to address the hard science issues. We fail to, to take the Word of God and apply it to, to real science. How, how did those, those rock layers form? How can we know that those rock layers are formed by the, by the flood? How do I know that the Colorado River didn't just whittle down through the, the, the uh, Grand Canyon? Well, one, thing, one way, just, just to answer that real quick, one big problem with the idea that Colorado cut out the, the Grand Canyon is that the eastern edge of the Grand Canyon, where the Colorado River goes through, is higher than the source waters of the Colorado River. So unless water can climb a mountain, you have a hard time getting it over to cut the riverbed. But at any rate. The second failure that the book and the Sunday School material addresses points right here at the parents. The parents, far too often, we have failed to accomplish our God-given responsibility to teach our children the ways and the word of God. Like Deuteronomy says, take every single opportunity that you have from the time you get up to the time you lay down, every time you walk through the, the house, take the opportunity to teach your children. In our culture, the majority of us parents have delegated the responsibility of teaching their children to somebody else. Either to, most often to the state for teaching in public schools or to some other teacher elsewhere or to the Sunday school teacher. You just take the kids, plunk them down. Okay, that's somebody else's job. They've taught their kids. Okay, great. And everything's fine. But when we do that, our values, our core beliefs, Our worldview, really, is not communicated to our children, but somebody else's. 
somebody else's basic beliefs that help them help young people form their opinions about how things work or what things do. In the case of Christian parents, the love that they have for the Lord God is not being communicated. Somebody else's beliefs and worldview are being impressed into the soft clay of their children's minds. And this is a situation that we as parents will have to give an account for for the Lord God. Remember, they're not our kids. They're the Lord's. They're just our stewardship, our responsibility to prepare them not merely to be responsible adults, but prepare them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, with every fiber of their being. Because that's the first and the greatest commandment. That's what the Lord expects of us. That's what the Lord expects of them. So, what is the Sunday School Materials means of addressing these issues? Well, they're, they're, they are addressed, whether, and it's up to us as to, to whether or not how it addresses it will, will actually work. But this material is designed with these issues in mind. It is a three-year program. We, we purchased just one year of it so far. Uh, it is a three-year program that teaches the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is fully graded from pre-K all the way through adult. And the lessons are geared so that each age group receives material at the depth of detail that is appropriate for that, for that age group, which is very typical of, of a lot of Sunday school materials. And just FYI, the, the uh, first four quarters have the following themes. Can I tr we can trust the Bible. I mean, it, it addresses it right off. This Bible, this dusty, dreary old book, we can trust it. It's backed up by none other, than, none other than God himself. It's his word. He breathed it into existence. Therefore, what it says is absolutely true. The next quarter is God is creator and redeemer. Because everything that we see around us, everything that is visible and invisible is part of God's overall plan. Just stop to think about every minute detail of life is planned by God. When the Lord Jesus said, 
every hair on your head is numbered. I mean, and beyond the literal meaning of that, what is the Lord Jesus trying to get at? Even the most seemingly insignificant detail, God is purposely caring for and in control of. Now think about that for a little bit. Is God in control, in providential control, of where snowflakes land? Yes. Of where raindrops fall? Yes. Not just where, you know, there's going to be a storm here. and No, every minute detail of life, God from eternity past decreed would happen. And we're going to be amazed in glory when we see the details of, what, of God's plan. One of, the, one of the big, big issues that many people have is when tragedy strikes a family, a person. And they say, you know, where is God? Why did God let this happen to me? The specific reasons nobody really knows but how often when something happens in your life and and it's a struggle and it's and it's difficult how often maybe 10 15 20 years down the road you look back on it and say although it was such a painful time i learned so much from that i appreciate the lord going helping me go through it it's never fun during it. But that principle of the Lord making, as the scriptures, makes the wrath of man to praise him and the rest he doth restrain. The Lord takes the most horrible circumstances and turns them around for his glory. And I mean, after all, what was the most horrible thing Israel could ever do to her Messiah? Kill him. What was the greatest blessing that ever happened to this world? The death of the Messiah. He is creator. He started it all. He has a purpose and a plan for it all. He is creator and redeemer. Third, God is faithful. There's not a single circumstance in our life that God is not in complete and total control of. And, and, re, and think about it this, this way. When, when tragedy does strike, some people find, get, give counsel that, well, God really didn't mean that to happen. You don't want to worship a God whose creation is greater or, out, or is out of his control. 
whose creation is greater than him. That's not the God of the Bible. God, and the fourth one, God is in control. We can trust him for everything that happens. Not only does it teach this, the content, does this Sunday school material teach the content of Scripture, but also it shows that the Bible's history is more reliable and more believable than the secular account of history. I mean, after all, according to the secular account of history, 14.7 billion years ago, nothing exploded and became everything. And they'll, they'll shroud it in fancy terms that, 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 uh, uh, that you know, there was nothing, but then, then there was this thing. And then all material, all material was in the universe was condensed into a teaspoon size uh, ball of everything. And then out of the chaos of that explosion, it self-organized to life. That, that's believable. It's, it's like I've said many times. If you had a junkyard and all you need is energy in the junkyard, so you wait for a... a a tremendous thunderstorm and then you put dynamite in that junkyard and right when the when the thunderstorm is about to hit the junkyard you blow up all that that dynamite and that's the way to build a 747 right <laughs> it works every time it's amazing and you look at this building and say wow it must have been an explosion in a brick factory No. Purpose, structure, organization has to come from an intelligence. And in reality, all life is based on information. This is one of the one, actually, one of the newer areas of so modern science is recognizing that all life is based on information. Everything in your DNA is information. It's coded information, but it's information. Information has to come from intelligence. It doesn't come from nothing. It doesn't come from chaos. When the Bible speaks to a scientific subject, this Sunday school material gives the science behind the observation <coughs> from a biblical perspective. Again, what caused those rock layers in the geological column? How did DNA 
come to be. And how, I mean, the cell is built according to the DNA. The DNA also controls how the inner workings of the cell read the DNA to duplicate the cell. So which came first, the cell or the DNA? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? That question, as simplistic as it is, is no problem for a creationist. The chicken. God created the chicken. And the chicken created the egg, which became the chicken, which created the egg, which became the chicken. And on and on it goes. It's no problem for a creationist. It's a huge problem for an evolutionist. And some evolutionists say, well, there was a lizard and it became a chicken. <laughs> we were just, just last fall, we went up to uh, the reptile land. Uh, what's the name of it? Clyde Peeling. Clyde Peeling's reptile land up on 15. And sat there and, and this very uh, well-mannered, educated young lady was telling us that the Tyrannosaurus rexes died, though they, di they really didn't die out, they became a chicken. They became the birds that are flying over your head. Have you ever seen bird legs? You ever see the, bird, the legs on a, on a Tyrannosaurus rex? That rump is not getting into the air, I'm sorry. <laughs> There are so many, I mean, what of all, of all the um, of all the animals with, with a backbone, what has the highest metabolism? A bird. I mean, birds are always eating. Because they, it takes a lot of energy to fly. What has the lowest metabolism? Reptiles. So you have to, to change the, the, the thing's entire metabolism. Birds have a very unique uh, pulmonary or breathing system. They don't have the same type of lungs that you and I have. They don't breathe in and out. It's a constant flow through with a bird. And only birds have that. And their DNA designed them to be that way. Oh, I could go on and on and on about that. This material gives the biblical answers to the skeptical questions of the day. So that, we, so that the young people can be equipped to go into that secular science class, whether it's in high school or whether it's in college, and hear them say, yeah, the, this, this uh, rock, this granite, it, we, we did a, the, uh, some tests on it, and it turns out to be you know, 250 billion years old. 
or a million years old, I should say. Well, why is that? What are we actually testing when we do radiometric testing? Or how often have you heard, well, carbon dating proves that the Earth is millions of years old. Well, no, it doesn't. If the entire universe was carbon-14, in less than a million years there would be zero carbon-14 molecules left in the universe. Any existence of carbon-14 in stuff proves that it's only a few thousand years old because the half-life is so short. You know there's carbon-14 in coal that's supposed to be 60, 70 million years old? You know there's carbon-14 in diamonds? Ladies, did you know that the diamonds on your finger are radioactive? Yes, they are. They're radio there's carbon-14. It's radioactive. Well, there's carbon-14 in you, too, so you're radioactive. Carbon-14 is everywhere in things that are or once were alive. And it's a good method for, for measuring, but what are you actually measuring? You're actually measuring the ratio between carbon-14 and carbon-12. You have to make some presuppositions to turn that into time. You have to, well, I'm not going to go into all that right now. But to help encourage family devotions and parental teaching, this material is not only graded from pre-K to adult, it also gives the same theme to everybody on every Sunday. So the adults get basically the same lesson that their pre-K kids get and the teenagers get and the elementary school students and the middle school students. They all get the same basic lesson. Again, age appropriate, but the intent of that is to encourage parents saying, well, what did you learn about in Sunday school today? To encourage that dialogue. Well, here's another little thought that we learned and on and on it goes. If you can encourage families to have devotions together, to have Bible study together, you are addressing that second problem. And it is my prayer that as we use this material, we'll be able not only to fulfill God's command to teach our children the precepts of the Word, but also the relevance of the word so that our young people and us in general will have every confidence the Bible is true. What the word of God says is absolutely true and reliable and I can trust it. Lessons for our lives. Number one, if a young person came up to you and asked you that old chestnut, where did Cain get his wife? What would you say to them? 
I mean, after all, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed Abel. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, that question in 1929 during the Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee, that very question, the ACLU defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, asked of Williams Jennings Bryant, the, the prosecution attorney, because he manipulated to put Bryant on the stand. And he asked that question of Williams Jennings, William Jennings Bryant, who was a tremendous, a godly man, great, fine Christian man, brilliant attorney, but he didn't know the answer. He said, I don't know. There's a very simple answer in Genesis chapter 5. And I'm not going to tell it to anybody here. It's your job to find out. But to say something like, it doesn't matter, just believe in Jesus, will do nothing but deepen the doubt that already exists in that young person's mind. It's our responsibility to, to know the answers. Or, this might be an interesting thing, to look up the answers together. Wouldn't that help? For those who have children at home, this is the prime time for you to fulfill your your God-mandated stewardship of training up your children in the way they should go. If they go to public school, make sure that you're aware of what they're being taught in class. If their homework includes information that is contrary to the Word of God, particularly when it comes to the unobservable past, make sure that they know the biblical answer to it. Again, topics like the Big Bang, the Earth and the universe of billions of years old, dinosaurs dying out 65 million years ago, humans descending from ape-like creatures. Be able to answer the questions that are there. Or hot-button topics like abortion, racism, physician-assisted suicide. What does the Bible have to say about it? If they go to Christian school or are homeschooled, don't think you're immune to the infiltration of humanistic ideas and teaching. Homeschool materials, many of them still teach. Millions, the earth is millions of years old. That, of course, means that you must be aware of what the Bible teaches on these subjects. If you have to give an answer, well, you'd better have the answer beforehand or be able to go and look it up with them. There are a lot of printed resources. There's a lot of trusted Christian websites that are available to you. For those of you, number three, those of you who have children at home, or no, I should say who do no longer have children at home, 
though the direct teaching of your children has diminished, never think that it's ended. You can still teach them the truth of the word at every opportunity. You also have a broader ministry opportunity, and that's back in that room back there, in that room over there. Sunday school, we, we do have Sunday school positions available. Just this morning, Barb asked me to uh, uh, pray for her foot because she's going to have it looked at by a physician. That's why she hasn't been able to, to minister. But there's Barb wants, with all her heart, to continue to serve the Lord. She has the opportunity. She has a desire. It is my desire to set up several teaching teams to be able to rotate through the Sunday school class so that the responsibility doesn't fall on the same people all the time because we all need fed. We can come out and hear pastor. But just remember this. This is a lesson number four. Everything that we do, everything that we serve the Lord with must be done out of a wellspring of love for the Lord God. I mean, we can talk about you know, different things all day. But whether we're ministering the word to our children at home or here in church or studying to learn what the Bible teaches about a given topic, we do it all because we desire to see the King of Glory magnified in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And lastly, this message was directed to Christians. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never come to a point where you've seen yourself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. Well, I implore you, before you leave here today, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. We'll be glad to tell you about how the Lord Jesus came to bear your sins, your failure to love the Lord with all your heart, and how he can redeem you forever. Let's pray. Lord God, how we thank you for your word, the word of truth. We pray that as we continue through to serve you day by day, that we would be, you would help us to love you more and to serve you better. Help us to glorify you in all that we do, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We changed the last song. It's not in your song sheets. It's Make Me a Servant. If you'd stand and join with Aaron and I, I think.